right now I'm working at MRC, Southampton, where we do a lot of projects on Indian studies. And this is the Pune Methodological Study, where we have 40 villages around Pune, and it's a prospective cohort, and right now the children are 12 years old. So we know them before, like we, we recruited all the women at the pre-pregnant stage, and we have stands. And right now I'm working on micronutrient status of mothers during their pregnancy and feeding growth. So that's the work I do on Pune related stuff. We are also running a trial in Mumbai, uh, which is very interesting because instead of giving supplements in terms of medicines or so, we make food. And the community people make food in Mumbai and we distribute food to 90 different slums every day on a daily basis. And it's a pre-pregnant supplementation where women have to eat before their pregnancy every day, a snack around 4 o'clock. And then, till they get pregnant, we follow them every day and we give them snacks every day in special rooms. So we have 90 different rooms in 90 areas where women go and eat snacks in front of us. And once they become pregnant, we follow them. And the idea is to see that pre-pregnancy supplementation might improve birth weight rather than giving micronutrients at second trimester. So, so that's what I, I'm mostly working on Mumbai project, organizing it, doing field work, and different things. We also work in Mysore, where um, it's kind of middle-class urban population, where diabetes and CVD is very high. And this is also a prospective cohort study. And right now, the children are 13 year old. So we have been following them up till now. So these are the three studies I'm involved in with them um, and I thought I should just show a picture of India and ask the question before starting the presentation, are we overeating now? Uh, this is the rice belt of India mostly, the southern part where rice is the staple food and the upper part is mostly wheat-based plus rice. So I thought I could just show different food varieties. And the curries, wherever we go, looks like this now. More fatty and more fatty and creamy. So during my travel, I have been in Mysore, which is South India, and Pune and Mumbai, which is West India, and Delhi. Wherever I went, I got a curry bit of similar type in all the restaurants and hotels because it's not regional-based food anymore. It's more creamy, fatty, and oily food. These are very moderate. I'm not showing the really floating, ghee floating curries. <laughs> Um, I was asking the question, are we overeating now? But recently, a study said that we are not overeating now. We have been overeating in the last centuries. Um, it, mm, brother scientists, one is religious scientist and other one on something else, they decided to look at 52 paintings on Last Supper, painted from the 11th century to now. And what they found is the food size and proportions have consistently increased <laughs> over time. <laughs> so, it's not that we just started to overeat, we have been slowly overeating maybe, and our bread size and the food size portions have increased over time, so... I don't believe it. <laughs> just for the... Yeah, I don't believe it either, but then from the pictures we can see that the bread size really changed. Sorry. It looks kind of... The size of bread did change from 14th century to 16th century, a bit. Has that increased the lifespan of people over the years? It's just to show that it, 
I don't know, it's a very short hair, but it's, it's not... it's idealization. Yeah, it's, so it's just you kind of, you know... You want exactly. So. so, but then one can see that the size of portions slightly change from tiny bread to a big loaf. So. But I'm not saying it as a scientific paper, so <laughs> that's not what I'm going to produce now <laughs> in the next minutes. Um, when we talk of nutritional transition, especially of uh, UK or US, we, we see that most obesity is very common among low SES or among low educated people, whereas in India the nutritional transition is happening now as we speak, and it's mostly in middle, middle class, upper middle class, and upper SES. So India is one of the very strange countries where nutrition transition is happening at the same time we have a very high proportion of undernourished people. So it, compared to all the developing countries where nutrition transition is happening, India is very peculiar in a case that we have very high levels of undernutrition and underweight. So it's a combination of both undernutrition and overweight, and we don't know what is happening in the future. Um, the interesting thing is, even though it's happening simultaneously, most of the researchers treat these two as separate entities. That means papers either focus on undernutrition or overnutrition. It, it's very difficult to capture this transition, so it, it's kind of, you know, very common to read papers on computer obesity or on undernutrition. It's not common to put all of them together and read about how it's changing over time or how it's changing within the groups. Um, if you look at the calorie consumption, I took India, China, US, and Brazil and the data from FAO, we can see that Indian calorie consumption did increase, but compared to China, US, and Brazil, the mean calorie consumption is not very high. But we have to bear in mind that this is not based on individual level data. Uh, FAO data is based on production and population, so we can't really say how, many, how much people consume in high SES and low SES, but it just gives a picture. The strange thing is the protein consumption in India has been stagnating over time and it's much lower compared to other countries with nutrition transition in China, Brazil, US, they all seem to consume much more protein compared to India. But if you look at the fat, it has been consistently increasing over time. So um, I tried to look at all the different complements, that share of various food items in the total energy consumption. And what we see is this pattern, where we see pulses and milk pulse-related products, it's going down, the consumption has been going down, whereas vegetable oils has been catching up. So mm, it is. A, mm, I think the pulses will go further down, that's my feeling, because the prices have been increasing consistently for lentils and different <coughs> grams. So I think the, ten, the trend will continue. Because and what is staying sta stable are staples like rice and wheat. Rice and wheat. Yeah. And we should also keep in mind that most of the Indians are vegetarians, so pulses and pulse-related products give more protein compared to any other food. So if these items decline, then the food will be mostly carbohydrate and sweet and oil-based food, which is also one of the dangerous things. And right now, I think a kilogram of pulses costs 98 rupees, one and a half pound, one pound, 40 pounds, something like this, which is very expensive to consume it on a daily basis. So the trend will keep going down, that's my feeling. Also during the field work, that's what everyone says. It's like the lentils are so expensive, we can't eat it. So it's mostly carbohydrate-based food. Also, milk and milk product consumption didn't really improve. It kind of stayed, it's kind of stagnating. 
compared to other countries. And uh, most of the Indians have vitamin B12 deficiency because of the same reason, because of the religious reason where many don't eat meat and that leads to high B12 deficiency. So what I wanted to do um, with my studies to see where we have the double burden, which regions have both undernutrition and overnutrition. And then I also wanted to look at uh, residents. Barry Popkin and others have argued that rural urban residence is an important predictor. However, some people said standard living is an important predictor. So I wanted to see which one is the important. Is SCS playing an important role than rural urban residence? What's the most important thing? Staying in urban areas or having more money? So I wanted to test which one is an important predictor of this tool. And I wanted to look at this double burden by religion and caste. Um, those of you uh, that are not familiar about caste, caste is an endogamous group in India. In Hindu religion, there are different castes, and traditionally, a caste decided the occupation of people. So there was the reading caste, former caste, um, dancing caste, there was caste for everything. So every profession had a caste, and it's an endogamous group. So people marry within these castes only. So we don't have information of individual caste, but we do have information about the upper caste, lower caste, middle caste, so we can see and tribes, schedule tribes, so that we can see if there is any difference by caste and religious groups in this double burden. And, um, and I wasn't sure how to study effectively this nutritional transition phenomenon. Should I just do a kind of logistic regression by taking different groups, or should I just take the whole distribution and study how it changes? from lower tail to upper tail, so I wasn't very sure when I started this. I initially started with binomial regression, and I didn't really like it. The logistic regression gave me all the odds, and I was like, I'm dividing them into groups, and I'm not really getting much. So I can tell the story that was told by several people before, but there's nothing new I can say from my logistic regression. So I was really bored, even though I had revised and resubmit. I didn't want to resubmit anymore because I was bored of it, and I threw it. <laughs> That was the dumbest thing to do, but I did throw it because I didn't feel like submitting it again. We've all done it. We've all done it. Tell me. Fed up with it. Because it's the same story, then you just wonder what am I getting out of it? What, yeah. What's the new thing I'm going to say? It will be the same thing for whole India instead of region. So that would be the only difference. So, and I was thinking, what's the best statistical method that I can use to study this double effectively? So these are the questions I wanted to know. And so I was interested in looking at the indicator standard of living in place of residence. What I have done is I created a compound variable from these two variables, standard of living and place of residence. In standard of living, I'm using the demographic health service. I'll talk about it later, about the data. Um, the variable I have is standard of living. It's divided into three categories. It's low, medium, and high. It is based on the components in the household. So it would be like 44 components. Um, the questionnaire has, do you have drinking water facility at your home, do you have a toilet, do you have a car, do you have a refrigerator, do you have cooking pans, so the questions go on and then we, it's a composite index, we just give equal weightage to a scooter and a bicycle or a car and a bicycle because we distinguish between these different components. The other thing I can do is running a principal component analysis and do my own kind of classification, but I realized that I'm not getting much more out of it. So but if you're if you're sort of categorizing transport as one thing, you're actually you're not measuring that as a, 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 as, a as a measure of status or of, 
or wealth, you, it's, it's a measure of mobility. Yeah. 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 So, and also for toilets, maybe for us, yes, it might not be an interesting thing because everyone has a toilet in their yeah. house. So, if you want to look at only for the lower part of distribution or specific regions, having a toilet makes yeah. an excellent pack. The point about it, um, um, an asset versus mobility is that mobility is a, is a, is a modern yes. is a modern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So it has more connotations than yeah. you know. Because I had 44 continents, I didn't want to divide, subdivide, because my question is, if, I, if standard of living plays an important role, then place of residence. So I decided to stick to the typical ones instead of bringing it separately. Whereas for my child nutrition paper, I decided to keep drinking facilities and toilets separately, because that was very important predictor for child area. Mm -hmm. Because when most of the children living in slums have very high diarrhea that <coughs> inversely had relation with their <coughs> rates and their growth. So in, in that case, I didn't add the SLI indicator, but the toilet and water facilities separately because there was a very strong association between those two. Um, and then I've created a variable with six different categories, rural high standard of living, rural medium standard of living, rural low, urban high, urban medium, and urban low. So I have six categories in my variable. And then I wanted to look at stunting. There is quite some evidence that stunting in childhood continues into adulthood, and we know that undernutrition in early gestation is related to high BMI in adult and old age. In Alagoas, one of the poorest states in Brazil, nearly 30% of stunted individuals suffer from overweight and obesity. So that was one of the questions I wanted to know, and I'm going to present it in this form of these two diagrams. Um, this circle represents low SES rural kind of phenomena where there is low birth weight infants and there's a thin fat phenotype. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with thin fat Indian phenotype. The babies that are born are normally thin, they look very thin, but when you make DEXA scan or any body fat composition, most of the Indian babies have much more very high fat percentage compared to European babies. So we have compared it with French children and Southampton children and Indian babies, even though they look normal weight and very thin, have very high fat in their body. And uh, we, recently we all had the DEXA scans in Pune and we were all disappointed to see our fat percentage because all of us, including BMI 19 and 22, had fat percentage more than 25. I'm not revealing my fat percentage, but we all had more than 25. None of us had the recommended lower level. The very thin, the thinnest, thinnest also. Based on BMI, most of us were normal weight, and we even had underweight people. And based on the scan, we all had more than 25% body fat percentage. And it went till 60% or 70%. So that, that was really the thin fat phenotype really coming alive while we were having one scan after the other. And it was, it was a true thing that we could feel that all of us had very high body fat presentation. This is the Indian phenotype. And then a low birth weight leads to undernourished child stunted mother in pre-field development and this cycle continues. And this is, transition happens when there is a postnatal game for the low birth weight infant and then we have excess adiposity, insulin resistance in pregnancy, gestational diabetes and this cycle continues. So what happens in India right now we have two separate cycles going on and people are moving from this cycle to the other cycle because of postnatal weight gain. 
And then what we have, the long-term long effects of these two are completely different, even though we are talking about the same person here that might move from this circle to other circle. Here we have stunting, low muscle and bone mass, and low cognitive ability, whereas long-term effects here are higher lipids and increase in inflammation, diabetes, and CVD. So we move from a poor man's disease kind of circle to a rich person's disease. So it's, it is happening kind of in a very rapid way that people have to kind of face these two in one life, kind of. We are not talking about different individuals, like different generations. We are talking about the same generation moving from this to the next one. So, um, my data set comes from the National Family Health Survey. It's a very large survey. It's the Demographic Health Survey, which is called National Family Health Survey in India. So I'm using the National Family Health Survey. We have three surveys by now, one, two, and three. My analysis here is National Family Health Survey 2, and um, it, it covers 91,000 women from all states in India. So they cover all different states, and it's a systematic sampling where 15 to 49-year-old women were kind of surveyed. We don't have many in our data set. The recent one has, but and if it is two, it just only covered women in the reproductive ages, 15 to 49. And um, BMI uh, was also collected, body mass index was collected for women, for everyone except those that were pregnant at the time of survey or those that just gave birth two months before the survey. So they were excluded in the height and weight measurements. And uh, the mean BMI for women in India was 20.3, and the range is 19 to 23 for different groups. So, so I'll show how BMI changes by the rural and urban style of living. So I have rural three different SES groups and urban three different SES groups. And we can see that based on the WHO classification, I've kept severely malnourished, severely underweight, moderately thin, mildly thin, normal weight, overweight, and obesity. So I have classified it to these different groups. And we can see that the 10% of rural women from low SMI are severely undernourished. And when we move to urban areas, it's also similar. So 10% of urban women with low SLR were also severely undernourished. In total, we have nearly 50% of undernourishment among those living in rural areas with low SLR. In urban areas, we do have also very high percentage, but relatively less compared to rural area. And most of the normal weight <coughs> men belong to the rural high SLR group. Nearly 60% of normal women belong 60% of women belonging to rural areas with high SMI with a normal weight. And then we have medium SMI in urban areas that have normal weight. And if you look at overweight and obesity, in case of overweight, in rural areas women with high SMI, 15% of them have overweight problems. And if you move to urban areas, it's 26%. So we see a very sudden increase. And then in urban areas with high SMI, 10% of women were obese. So we can see that urban areas consistently show for overweight problems, whereas for undernutrition, it's not really such a strong difference. So this is my sample size. In total, we have 74,541 in the sample. And what I've done is I've made a ground map of India to show where we have very high percentages of malnutrition. The darker color represents high levels of malnutrition. 
So you can see that Karnataka, Maharashtra, the central Madhya Pradesh, and eastern India have very high percentages of malnutrition. In North India, Jammu and Kashmir, Punjab, Haryana, Delhi, we don't have very high percentages of malnutrition. And same in the case of Northeast states. This region is called Northeast, uh, it's Northeast India. There are many sister states and also Kerala, we don't have very high malnutrition um, rates. But when we move to the next graph that represents high percentage of overweight, we see that it's exactly the opposite. Kerala has very high obesity overweight problems, Punjab, Delhi. However, Northeast India still doesn't have very high overweight problems. It, it looks relatively balanced. Whereas the regions that have very high malnutrition, they don't have very high overweight problems. So we see that it's also a regional kind of thing. Real tribute to this region like that. It looks very geographical to me. Yeah. And even though I'd rail against the geographical explanation, it looks um, you know, Madhya Pradesh is not such a good agricultural place or yeah. resource. So, so. Yeah. 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 Same with Bihar. And Rajasthan. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't see. The interesting thing is Karnataka seem to be kind of doing worse in both. They have very high undernourished at the same time, very high percentages of overweight. And same in the case of for Maharashtra. Maharashtra seems to be, I think Maharashtra is influenced by Mumbai because there's so many migrants coming to Mumbai and we have both extreme cases. So we see that Western India kind of has very high malnutrition at the same time, very high overweight problems. So I have the feeling Karnataka, Maharashtra kind of cases where they'll have more and more increasing cases of simultaneous existence of undernutrition and overnutrition. Is this, me, is this overweight problem um, prevalent in the rural women just as much as the urban women? Um, this is complete. I took uh, both rural yeah. and urban areas. Okay, so it's kind of unif more or less the same across the border. Uh, what I did was I took just the main kind of uh, yeah. rural and urban areas and the main values for okay. each and every state. And I took the percentages of those that were undernourished okay. in that state and I just plotted it. Okay. And then I did the same for overweight women as well. Mm -hmm. Just to kind of show yes. on a graph how regional clustering is happening. Sure. Um, what I've done is um, I classified all these regions into further six sub-regions. What I have is North India, Central India, East, Northeast, West, and South India. In case of, I can show you in the graph how, in the map how I've done it. Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, they're classified as Southern India. This part is Northeast India. West India is West Bengal, uh, East India is Bihar, West Bengal, Orissa, Central is Madhya Pradesh and Uttar Pradesh. The top bit is North India. So I've classified them into these different regions to see how the BMI is changing. And what we can see is East India has very high percentages of women with undernutrition and also Western India. And then in total, Eastern India, if we look at the total distribution, nearly 40% of women living in Eastern India have some type of malnourishment. And the Western India is also following East India. But then it gets very interesting when we move to next levels of BMR, West India keeps coming as well. So Western India seems to have this high proportion of undernourished as well as overnourished people. And most of the normal weight people come from Northeast India, nearly 70% of Northeast Indian women seem to have normal weight. 
that's very good. And followed by North India. And when we move to over, overweight problems, 12% of South Indian women have overweight problems, and North India was a similar level. And in obesity, in West India, again it comes. Previously, we had West India coming in, you know, undernourished group, and again we have it in overweight in obesity. So we see that West India is completely imbalanced, maybe because of Mumbai. And um, nearly 4% of North Indian women are obese, and again, West India, 3.5%, followed by Southern India. So mm, that was the kind of regional differences I found. And then I wanted to do, uh, initially, as I said, I started doing normal regression analysis. There are different options. One can do taking the whole distribution and running normal or less regression. The other possibility is doing binary or multinomial logistic models where I divide all the categories and I have three categories, normal weight, underweight, and overweight, and I can calculate the probability of being undernourished compared to any of those categories. Or I can just take the whole distribution and just do a normal OLS. But the reason why I didn't uh, stick to any of those common methods is if I do it, in case of India where we have simultaneous existence of these two problems, I would be focusing on average of the distribution instead of looking at the tails. So I thought it's better if I look at um, the whole distribution instead of ignoring the tails and then just focus on the average of the distribution. So quantile regression helps me kind of to do this kind of analysis where I can look at the different parts of distribution and I can say the impact of, for instance, education or any of the policy relevant variables at different quantiles. So I, I, don't, I didn't have to ignore all the information we have. And the other thing is, it, the other important thing is normally, if we do kind of take cut off points, as I said, the fat percentage is very difficult in India because 25 is a normally overweight cut off point, that's what we take it as. But then most of the Indian researchers working in India and also abroad, they found that already at BMI of 23, Indians are prone to have diabetes and CVD. So the cut off points really don't make a sense because if we already see such kind of CVD risk factors at BMI of 23, it's better to leave it as it is, take the whole distribution, and to see what is happening at different parts of distribution. And when we do quantile regression, most of the people worry, are we going to lose any information? Are we going to focus only on the quantiles? We are not going to lose any information when we do quantile regression analysis. What we do is we take our whole sample, but we focus on that particular quantile when we run a regression and compare it to the rest of the distribution. So what happens is we don't have to delete any observations when we focus on 20th percentile, for instance. We take the whole distribution, we just have different slopes. The slopes keep changing, but we use the whole data, we utilize all the information we have, and then we try to see what happens in 20th, 40th, 50th percentile quantile regression is nothing but median regression. So we are using the least absolute deviation approach instead of some square residuals that we use more or less. So that, that would kind of help us to move from one quantile to other quantile, and we can say, the impact of education or impact of water facilities. Especially if we know that our dependent variable is heterogeneous, there is no point in, assume, in assuming that you know all of education variables or policy variables will have a similar kind of impact in the different parts of distribution. So it's better to kind of take it and assume that yes, we have heterogeneity in our sample, our BMI is different in different groups, so I want to look at it different groups 
and look at education impact at BMI of different groups, so how policy implication changes in different groups, so maybe even the regional differences we can see in different groups because we can see that Western India is kind of behaving with very simultaneous existence, so we can see that the coefficients keep changing when we move from one point to other quantiles. So what we have to do is we have to run different regressions for different quantiles and compile all the information together. So I would run one regression for fifth percentile, one regression for 25, one for 50, one for 60. So and then I would compile all the information from the different regressions in one table. So we have to run different regressions for different quantiles. That's the only thing we have to do. And uh, right now with all the packages we have in state, it's quite easy because we just have to say QX, the quantile regression. So instead of REG, we just have to say Q. That's it in the beginning and it gives you everything. You just have to specify the quantile we want and it gives everything we want. So what I've done is instead of showing the table, so my table looks like this. Like I have for quantile 5, 25, 50, 75, 95, I have run different models and then I have my coefficients. And interpretation is simple, just like the OLS regression. So we don't have to interpret it in a different way. It's the same way of interpretation. But when we focus at quantile 50 to 50, what we say is, this is the median, and what happens at this median, at this part of distribution, at the center of distribution. And then we are looking at fifth percentile here, 25, center of distribution, and then we have 75 and 95. So these are all different coefficients from different regressions. So I've done five regressions, and I just made it in graphical form so that it's easy to kind of understand. What does a negative number mean in this context? It's a negative coefficient, which means compared to south, the PMI declines by right. 0. Point, if it is minus 0. 0.2, it declines by minus, declines by 0. 0.2 units of PMI. Okay. So I took BMI as BMI, I haven't logged or done anything. So. So it's a very straightforward and very easy way of interpretation. If you have any questions about it, feel free to ask me. I'm happy to talk about any of those. So what we have is here, south is my reference point. So compared to southern India, what happens to north, central, east, northeast, and west? If I see positive coefficients, that means compared to southern India, these other regions are performing better in that particular quantile. And if I see negative coefficients, it means it's doing worse than South India. So if BMI declines compared to southern India for any state, we'll see negative coefficients. For instance, here, this line is South India, and we can see here that East India and yeah, we have East India that's not doing well compared to South India. And we also have Western India that's not doing well for this part of distribution. So we can see that it's consistently below South India, whereas Western India then slowly moves, whereas Eastern India keeps going down. So we can see that when we move from lower quartiles to upper quartiles, Eastern India is going down. So the interpretation is that the gap between the South and East India is increasing when we move from one quartile to other quartile. Whereas in the case of Western India, what we see is it kind of declined, and then afterwards it is doing better than some of the other states. So the decline is not consistent. So when we move to upper quartiles, it's kind of catching up. So we don't see that when we move from lower part to upper part of distribution, South and Western India, they don't diverge. They just have the similar kind of gap between those two. 
And then when we look at Northeast India, Northeast India is doing very good compared to South India. We can see till the half of distribution and then afterwards we don't see that it's doing better. But it's a good news in general knowing that Northeast India. Yeah, go on. Oh, so. I was just going to say, when you say better and worse, you mean in terms of BMI absolute? Um, Abs so, so, so it means if it's above, BMI, it means they have yeah. average higher BMI exactly. and then exactly. below it's exactly. lower. So we, we can't say if it's good or bad unless we look at the values, but we know based on our tables that Northeast India is doing better in terms of, they don't have severe undernutrition and overnutrition problems, so based on it, I'm interpreting, looking at the table, so okay. the, the interpretation kind of has to be in reference to how the BMI is in general. Mm -hmm. So it's an absolute BMI values, so I haven't changed anything, I haven't locked it, so basically it's like, if it, it increases by 0.5 units here compared to South India for Northeast India, nearly 0.48 or so. So that's that is interpretation. And you're assuming that distributions of BMI are, are normal and or oh, we don't have this. No, that's the beauty of quantile depression. Because okay. if we don't have a normal distribution, that's even better for quantile yeah. because it's robust to apply as a robust to non normal distribution. So if we don't have a normally distributed BMI, we can use quantile regression. That's one of the reasons why some people use quantile regression. And I also don't have very normal distribution because one of my tails are very, very long. So my right tail is very long and stretched, so I decided to use quantile regression instead of logging it or doing something to it. So. And, and the other variable I was interested in was urban uh, and rural residents with standard of living. And then the most interesting thing I found is there is no difference between rural high standard of living and urban middle standard of living. In my coefficients, there is no statistical difference at all between them. So my difference category is rural high SES, which is at zero, you can see. And then compared to the rural high SES, urban middle income is similar. So we can see clearly that also urban high SES, it, it keeps changing consistently, it keeps increasing the BMI when we move from lower to upper quartiles. The, the gap between the rural high SES and urban high SES, it keeps increasing when we move from lower parts of distribution to the upper parts. Whereas there is no difference practically between urban middle income and rural high income, which shows that place of residence plays an important role compared to sense of living. And then very interestingly, we also see that here, our other rural area, middle and urban low is kind of almost similar. So sometimes it, it's, it's kind of very strange when we move to upper parts of distribution that we see consistently low. And then whereas the rural low and urban low are moving together, and then we can see that it's that there is a divergence between them, but of course I'm not comparing all of those because I'm comparing against rural high. But it's very interesting to see that compared to rural high SES, middle urban SES, they're not very different at all. Okay, those are very different policy implications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the structural issues, so if yeah. you're promoting urbanization, then you, you know, you're promoting you know, um, you know, increased Yes. Yeah. 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 So that, that's what I, I kind of find it and that's, that's what I find it very interesting because even with high SES in rural areas, you can't achieve that high BMI compared to those with mi middle income in urban areas. So 
it looks kind of very interesting once we merge all of the information together. And then I wanted to look at the BMI and education uh, also, and I took the difference as tertiary education. We have four categories, no education, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And compared to tertiary education, we can see that BMI consistently declined from lower to upper parts of distribution for those with no education. So the gap between tertiary and no education keeps increasing when we move from one quarter to other. And there is no difference um, between tertiary education and secondary education, actually statistically, when we move to 95. I, that's very interesting because somehow in the upper part of distribution, education was not the most important thing. But in general, there is a consistent difference between no education and primary, secondary education. So I could see that tertiary education means very high BMI except for very high quantile where tertiary and second didn't make any difference at all. Education should reduce dual burden. Is that taking um, message? Unfortunately, it's <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So being educated again means urban life, means okay. fried food. That, that's very interesting <laughs> because when we were doing principal component analysis for our MySoul data, yeah. we came across very funny things. Those that consume fizzy drinks and very heavy sweets also have fruits. So food consumption is mixed, like it, it's kind of all the good food and bad food, they go together kind of in one group and the next group just had traditional food but they didn't have many fruits. So it's very interesting to see those, it's like with purchasing power, they, they eat both good and bad things at the same time. So, and then others don't consume foods, and they might consume healthy food, but foods again very expensive. So, that's a kind of interesting thing we see, which is unusual. And in the beginning, you said that the regional food, the original regional food, is now changing. Um, have they been affected by this ubiquitous use of soil? Not really. I don't think so. I don't think so. India, I think. No, India is pretty protected. Mm -hmm. It's all fried food. Wherever we go, it's all fried or sugary stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I meant in relation to um, lentils or the pulses, mm -hmm. and it's now moving slightly away from that because it's too expensive. Yes, there is no soya alternative in India, so unfortunately they're moving more towards fried carbohydrates or processed mm -hmm. food. Unfortunately, that's that's a very bad thing because egg consumption also is declining. So we are trying to kind of um, tell people in Mumbai that eggs are very cheap and you can have it any time, any season because there is a myth that during summer eggs are very bad for health because it creates more heat in the body. So we are trying to tell that egg is a very good protein replacement and one should have eggs. And we are trying to get a grant to change lifestyle in Mumbai where we can go and tell or we want to have more GLB in the snacks. Instead of changing the whole dietary pattern, what we want to do is make them add more GLB to the snacks. So they look like snacks, they look like samosas, but inside there will be more micronutrient-based food, more fruit or more nuts or whatever. So that, that we don't want, we can't, we realize that we can't change it. If we give soups or we tell them to eat salads, it, it's not going to work. The only way it will work is give the fried food but add as many micronutrients as possible. So, yeah, I'm hoping that it will work so that we can liaise with vendors in Mumbai to kind of tell them, we'll give you GLV, you put it, we subsidize GLV, you sell for the same price, 
and hopefully the kids and people in Islam's can eat mm -hmm. food, so. that that is actually my aim and I would very much like to see you know fried food but hidden food so hidden nuts inside <laughs> instead of all the fried processed food and what I realized is mass media okay. any questions about um, there's a lot of literature saying that people that watch television for a long time are obese and mass media has a lot of relation with obesity. So what I tried is I had four different variables, radio, television, if they go to cinema very often and if they read newspapers very often. So I've combined all the components and I've created variables called all components, some components and none. And it's very interesting because compared to all components, we see that no components, people have consistently low BMI. So those that are exposed to all components of BMI seem to have, uh, all components of mass media seem to have higher BMI. But there is no difference in the first, actually, lower part of distribution. When we started the lower part of distribution, it doesn't matter if they're exposed to some, none, few. But then when we move to center part of distribution, the divergence becomes very apparent. So we can see that people that are exposed to all components have relatively high BMI compared to those that are not exposed to any of those mass media. But once again, it's very mixed because being exposed to mass media at lower part of distribution might be good because they'll be getting information about uh, diarrhea, oral replacement therapy, different health messages. Whereas here, in the upper part of distribution, being exposed to all of those is maybe just going to cinema and eating a lot of popcorn and fried. We don't really know how mass media can have, so we don't see a clear tendency in this case. And we can't really say it's very negative. We can say that BMI increases with mass media, but how good it is or how bad it is that we can't really say now. <coughs> and my final question was about the... Um, um, looking at stunting, this was the place where I, I kind of got stuck in my paper. I wanted to look at stunting and impact on obesity. Stunting in childhood leads to obesity in adult life. That was my hypothesis. And because this is a cross-sectional data, I don't have any information except for the height of women. That's it. But then if I take my BMI as my dependent variable and I use height, then there is a correlation between these two. So I really don't know how I can just move forward with it, kind of to test my hypothesis that stunting leads to obesity or overweight in upper quartiles or in upper parts of distribution, because there is a kind of serial relation in my both variables. What I've done is I just took a dummy variable instead of taking the continuous height variable using the WHO standard, where women below 145 are called as stunted, and those that are 145 are one stunted. Do you know of health survey for India three? He asks the same, some of the same people, mm -hmm. completely different people. And they don't reveal okay. also. Sorry? We can't connect. They don't reveal. If, if, they, if they interview the same, we wouldn't know because okay. they, they would give completely different A different code number. Okay. So the only way of understanding is looking at cohort studies. So I'm hoping that these children in Pune and Mysore, <laughs> they become adults very soon and then we can test this hypothesis. And recently, um, Someone in Delhi, the, in Delhi there is a new, new Delhi birth cohort is happening, like in, in, now they're focusing on fourth generation. 
However, they're kind of a bit touchy to give me data. So next week, I might know if they're going to give me data. I'm going to work hard and impress them to get the data so that I can test my hypothesis because they all work for government and they work at all in the Institute of Medical Sciences and they don't want to give the data to anyone. They're very protected. So hopefully this weekend, uh, when I'm meeting them, I'll pursue them so that I can have the daily cohort so that I can test if stunting leads to obesity at all or not. So, Using a cross-sectional data, I think it's too it's too greedy to say that I want to test the hypothesis of something. But I'm not sure if I use this kind of qualitative information of below 145 as stunted and above 145 as non-stunted, how bad it is or how good it is. I'm still thinking about it. So if you have any ideas or if you think I can use the qualitative information rather than just taking continuous high distribution. I'm not sure. I would really love to have any feedback or comments on that. So, yeah, I don't know if I should take height as something or if I should take height and weight instead of taking BMI. Well, the problem with take BMI and height, they do, you, you can get water correlation. Yeah. But that hasn't stopped some people doing it. Yeah, exactly. But then my referee said, you have to say why you're doing it. You have to really come up with yeah. you know, a good plan. But I really can't come up with any great ideas other than what hey, I Why don't you use weight and height squared and then kind of incorporate a BMI in your measure? Mm -hmm. The reason for doing that is because, because height and weight are not linearly related. Mm -hmm. We are not two-dimensional beings. Maybe that's... Mm -hmm. Or maybe weight and height experiment, yeah. and then just play with the experiment. Mm -hmm. Rachel, got any ideas? Not sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> you can think about it if you come up with it. You can yeah, tell yeah. me later. I'm really kind of stuck there because yeah. I thought that's that's the main point I wanted to answer, and I couldn't. So I really I got stuck there for years and years. I think for the last 18 months, I'm just sitting and thinking about how to use cross-sectional data to understand stunting and obesity, because we don't really have cohort studies for any of the developing countries. So there should be a possibility to understand so that we can have a policy kind of implications for it, because if it is really happening in all the developing countries where the nutritional transition is happening, stunted people are becoming obese, we can and your age bracket in, in the, in the uh, uh, family health survey is very narrow, so yes. you can't even use that as a kind of proxy. Rickshaws, auto rickshaws, there is like 
little, little spaces for walking and it's impossible. So physical activity has been declining heavily in India. I'm really trying hard to do any exercise while I'm in India. It's impossible because walking is not possible. We sit in auto rickshaw, we eat oily food and we come back feeling fat. So. <laughs> So that has been very consistent, so we are finding it very hard. And also, uh, recently Alok has argued that um, if there is such a kind of uh, coronary heart disease and diabetes, if it's a rich person's disease, what happens is all the medical doctors might be specialized more and more in such kind of problems. We might have a problem with the redistribution of medical resources because all the doctors would be fo focusing on rich person's disease because they can make more money out of it and then the undernutrition problems might be ignored even though very high proportion of Indians are undernourished. So that might be one of the policy implications. So thanks a lot and we look forward to your comments, questions and suggestions. Okay, thanks. Thank you.